from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make a straight earthquake path. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In our last broadcast, we spent some time looking at people who did not repent. Of course, this was a part of a global theme of laying a proper foundation where we're looking at the foundational principles of functional doctrines, the Christian faith. And the first one is repentance from dead books. And we said we're going to look at repentance. And in looking at repentance, we looked at what repentance is. Then we looked at what repentance is not. And in our last broadcast, we looked at people who did not repent at all. We looked at Adam and Eve, who had other opportunity to repent, how God asked them questions. And instead of answering, they were blaming other people. We looked at Cain. After he had killed Abel, God came and asked after Abel. He said, am I my brother's keeper? And we had noted that when God is asking questions, he's not demanding for information from us. He's actually trying to help us to get to the place where we would respond in repentance to him. But these people did not catch it. And then we spoke about King Saul. King Saul had not done what Samuel had told him to do, which was to wait for him, Samuel, to come and administer the offerings before he went to battle. But Saul had gone ahead and given the offering. Shortly after that, Samuel came. And instead of Saul to repent and say he was sorry, he blamed Samuel for even coming late and said that, look, what else could I have done? I felt compelled. And then we looked at King Asa. King Asa was a king whom God had marvelously helped. But then when he faced challenges, after 35 years of peace in the 36th year of his reign, he faced a major challenge. And instead of turning to God, he turned to his enemy for help. And God sent a prophet to him. And the prophet told him that you have done foolishly. God's eyes is running to and fro the whole earth, looking for whom in whose behalf might be strong. And in doing what you did, Asa, you have done foolishly. But Asa got angry and threw this fellow into prison and began to oppress the people at that time until God struck him with a disease in his foot. And the Bible says that even with the disease, he did not seek after God, but he sought after physicians. No mention was made of Asa repenting. And then we spoke about King Uzziah. King Uzziah was the famous king that Isaiah had prophesied during his time. In fact, as far as Isaiah was concerned, King Uzziah was a righteous king. But this was a king who, when he became strong, he became established, he also had a puffed up ego to the point that he decided that he was going to burn incense in the temple, something that was especially meant for the priests. Not even the Levites could do that. And he took it upon himself to do it. And when he was accosted by the priests, he was angry at them and was even about to maybe attack them or something when God broke leprosy over him. And now being found as a leper, he was thrust out of the temple and was taken to a home in isolation where he died. And throughout that time, we never heard once that he repented before the Lord. And then we gave an example of King Manasseh, a very brutal, wicked, evil king, who when God got him arrested, he was put in cuffs and taken into prison by the enemy king. While he was in prison, he humbled himself and humbled himself greatly, crying to God, pleading with God, telling God he was sorry. And God returned him to Judah and back as king. Nobody had taken his position. And when he got back, everything, every wicked and evil thing he had done, he uprooted all the idols he had built, changed everything completely. He became a changed man. That is true repentance. So on the basis of what we looked at, we said, why is it that people do not repent? Number one, people tend to want to blame other people for their faults. So if you are not ready to accept responsibility for what you have done wrong, you are not going to repent. Then we said, secondly, that people refuse to admit guilt. People don't want to accept that they are guilty. 
And once you do not accept guilt, you cannot repent because repentance is predicated on the fact that you accept that you are guilty. Thirdly, we said that people refuse to take responsibilities for their own actions or inactions, as the case may be. A lot of people just keep shirking their responsibilities and passing it on to others like Adam and Eve. Instead of accepting that we did eat the fruit, Adam blamed Eve and even God. Eve blamed the serpent for beguiling her. But we know that Eve took the decision on her own. Yes, the serpent may have told her how good it was, but the decision eventually was hers. And she refused to take responsibility. Many of us refuse to take responsibilities. And as long as you don't take responsibility for your actions or inactions, as the case may be, you are not going to repent. Finally, we said that a lot of people do not repent because they are angry at the people who are telling them the truth. Sometimes people say, oh, it's the way you are speaking. If you spoke differently, it, that's not the point. The point is, were they telling you the truth? Did something in your spirit man say, this fellow is telling me the truth? If not, you have a problem because the residue that God has left in man, even the unregenerate man, is the conscience of man. If your conscience does not touch you when you are being told the truth that what they are telling you is the truth, then you really have a problem. And so people get angry when they are being told the truth and in their anger, they do all kinds of things and refuse to repent. Now, there was one last thing that we didn't mention because it had nothing really to do with all that was said. A fifth reason why people do not repent is that some people see nothing wrong with doing what is wrong. They think it is okay. They don't see that it is anything wrong. If you say you are born again and you see nothing wrong with sin, then you are not born again. Because at the very root of salvation is the fact that a person has lived a life of sin. And for me to repent, it means that I have accepted that that life of sin is sinful and I must now withdraw from it. So if I refuse to accept sin as sin, then I will not repent, which means that the people who do not repent enjoy the sin that they are living in. I once asked a young man who was getting himself drunk on alcohol. And, you know, one of the rare super moments, I asked him, do you see anything wrong with alcohol and the pain is bringing on the family and your siblings and your relatives and so on? He said, absolutely not. So there was no way to convince him differently because he didn't see anything wrong with it. As long as you don't see anything wrong with sin, you are not going to repent. So one major reason why people do not repent is because they are still enjoying the pleasures of sin. In Hebrews chapter 11 from verse 24, through to verse 27. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the recompense. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses refused to enjoy the passing of fleeting pleasures of sin. He rather preferred to suffer. And so he was willing to repent as it were and turn away from the life of an Egyptian to that of a Jew, even though the Jews were being oppressed and were slaves. He chose the life of a slave. Why? He refused the fleeting pleasures of sin. As long as we are eager for the pleasures of sin, we are not going to repent. If we repent at all, it's going to be false or fake. That brings us to what we want to discuss. We want to look at why people repent falsely. And we are going to round up by looking at repentance in broad terms, what repentance requires, and we'll probably end up with restitution, and then we'll move in the next broadcast to discussing dead works. So why do people repent falsely? 
or why do people fake or feign repentance? The first thing we want to look at is when Esau said he repented. The reason why Esau was repenting was because he wanted something that he had lost. And he thought that by feigning repentance, by crying, by tears, he could bring that blessing back his way. So a lot of people repent falsely because they have lost something and they want that thing back. And they have this notion that if they could cry, if they could act in a particular way, perhaps people will have pity on them and bring those things back to them. We see a lot of people act this way, especially when they are caught doing something. That brings me to the second one, which is the case of Achan. When people are caught and are hoping that by feigning repentance, they would mitigate the consequence that is coming to them, you see them feigning repentance. After somebody has been caught, maybe he committed a crime, and then when he's now caught, you see him looking very innocent. In fact, some lawyers will advise him to dress in a particular manner so that the judge will be lenient on him. But of course, by the time they look through the evidence and see how premeditated his actions were, of course, he's never spared. And that was what Achan did. Achan tried to feign repentance, hoping that it will mitigate the consequence of what God would do on him. Achan had every opportunity in the world to repent before he was caught. There was the sanctification for everybody. He went through the sanctification process. He nothing told him that this is the time to repent. Then the following day, as they were choosing them, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was picked. He didn't think that he would be the person being picked. Then they went house by house and his house was chosen. He still kept quiet. Then they went family by family and his family was chosen. He kept quiet. Then they went man after man. It was when they went man after man that he was now picked. And even at that, they still had to prod the thing out of him. And we hear a lot of these things. He said, and made me do it. Nobody can make you do what you don't want to do. We are the architects of our decisions and we must own up. So when people are caught and they try to mitigate the sentences, you see them feigning repentance. We saw in Pharaoh's case that all Pharaoh was interested in was to have respite from the plagues that had come upon Egypt. And so every time the plague would come, he would promise Israel that, okay, I will let you go. Just remove the plague. And the moment the plague is removed, he says, no, I'm not going to let you go. So a lot of people feign repentance because they just want respite from the pain. We looked at the case of King Saul, where people want to look good in public. They want to save face. They want people to believe that they are still in right standing with God. And so sometimes they feign or fake repentance so that when they come out in public, they will be accepted. In the case of King Saul, when Samuel told him, well, sorry, you have disobeyed God. And because you have disobeyed God, I cannot go anywhere with you. He grabbed Samuel's robe and tore it. And Samuel pronounced the decree of God that, your kingdom is taken away from you and given to somebody better. But he said, don't worry, just follow me. Let me worship God before the people. He just wanted people to feel that he was in good standing with God. There are many people who do that, particularly those who are pastors and those who go to church. They know they've done something wrong, something that ordinarily between them and God, they should just go and stay home, lock themselves up and repent. But no, they will go all over the place and act as if they are in right standing with God, whereas they know that God is angry at them. Then again, People are emotional rather than sorrowing after a godly sort. There is the emotional sorrow for sin, not a godly sorrow for sin. Let me read 2 Corinthians 7, 8 to 11. For even if I made you sorry, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow, led to repentance 
For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. These people were sorrowful in a godly manner after they read the letter that Paul had written to them, chastising them for tolerating sin rather than dealing appropriately with sin. It was a very, very grievous letter that Paul had written. He himself said that he regretted sending it. But when he saw the response, he was no longer sorry that he sent it. Why? Because their response was a sorrow after a godly sort. In verse 9, continuing, he said, For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. In verse 10, he says, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, emotional repentance will lead you to hell. It will still lead you to death. You might be crying, but it is not a sorrow according to a godly sorrow. Why? He continues in verse 11. He says, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. Their actions, their actions showed that they were sorry in a godly manner. Like Manasseh, Manasseh's sorrow was that of a godly sort. Because the moment he got back to the throne, he was not just about sitting on the throne. He began to remove everything that he had established aforetime. That is what godly sorrow is. Emotional sorrow is something that we go through. For example, maybe you lost a friend whom you had seen only recently. And then you suddenly hear that he died. So you went to his funeral and the preacher began to preach. And the message was touching you. And he was saying, this fellow has died. He has settled his account with God. What of you? Is your account settled with God? And you start feeling, it's true. It's true. It could happen to me. It could happen to me. You quickly raise up your hand or you go forward. You answer an altar call. Why? Because you were afraid of what would happen to you if you drop dead then. Then, a few days after, you are back to your old ways. That repentance was an emotional repentance. It's what we call false or fake repentance. It's not repentance after a godly sort. Then there are those who want something from God and they think that by feigning repentance, they will get it. Obviously, they don't know God. We saw Simon the sorcerer who wanted power. He saw Philip manifesting certain powers. He joined himself to Philip. He actually went through all the necessary foundational classes and those other things until the time they were praying for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And he saw that as the apostles were laying hands on people, people were receiving the Holy Spirit. He went to the apostles. He wasn't ready to go through that. He said, how much can I give you? So that when I too lay hands on people, they will receive it. Peter looked there and said, your money perish with you. And there are people who are like that. Their repentance is because they want to get something from God. The truth of the matter is that the way we pastors preach, we say, if you want this power to come upon you, all you need to do is give your life to Christ. Of course, everybody wants power. Everybody wants that kind of power. Or you're talking of healing. If you want God to heal you, you need to repent. Of course, the man wants to repent. But we never address the issue of sin. Repentance from sin discusses sin. Just like when we are going to discuss repentance from dead works, we are going to look at dead works. You must know what you are repenting from. So you don't answer an altar call just because you want to get something that you think God is going to give you and you say because of that, that you have repented. You have not. You merely answered a call for healing. And many people are healed without them repenting. You can be healed and not repent. Healing does not equate to salvation. Healing is healing. God can heal somebody who has not even repented. He can just have compassion and heal that person. Lastly, people repent falsely because they want to avoid the consequences of their actions. Simon the sorcerer, when Peter told him that, look, something worse is going to happen to you if you don't represent, ah, please oh, pray oh, that such a thing does not happen to me. I'm sorry. So we must be very, very careful. 
to avoid feigning repentance just because we want to get something from God. That brings us to what is required if we are truly to be repentant. First and foremost, we need to have a good and honest heart before the Lord. Without such a heart, you cannot truly repent before the Lord. Some broadcast back, we spoke about the issue of hearts and how people respond to the gospel depending on the kind of heart that they have. We spoke about the hard heart, the stony heart, and the thorny heart. And then we spoke about the good and honest heart. And we said at that time that if you have the hard heart, the stony heart, or the thorny heart, which is what all of us have actually, have an issue. We can go to God and God can change that heart to a good and honest heart. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 23, the Bible says that he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. When a man has a good heart, he will receive the truth. He will know that if I do what is right, God will accept me. God told Cain, if you do right, would you not be accepted? But instead of Cain to do what was right, because he had murder in his heart, he still went ahead and killed Abel instead of doing what he was supposed to do. So a good heart is a foundational requirement for repentance. And note, repentance is not just something that you do once and for all. Because we are human. We do offend. And when we do offend, the Holy Spirit nudges us to repent. We must do it instantly. You need that good heart to be ongoing in your life. Otherwise, when it is time to repent before the Lord, you will not. And that is one of the challenges that people face when it comes to dealing with the matter of repentance before the Lord. Those people who fake or feign repentance either have stony hearts or thorny hearts. The people with hard hearts, they could feign it or they will not even repent at all. So it's important that you have a good and honest heart. The second requirement is that you must be of a broken and contrite spirit. In Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, this was David's repentance. He said, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That was what Manasseh exhibited a broken and contrite spirit, one that has been brought low, broken, crushed. His ego has been rubbished. He's not looking at himself anymore. He's looking only at God. That is a heart that would bring somebody to the place of repentance. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1 and verse 2, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. That is the man that God will look at. So if you want to repent, these are the things that must be there. A good and honest heart, a broken and contrite spirit. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are they who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The man who is poor in spirit is the man who has a broken heart, is the man who says, I need God. The poverty of the spirit is knowing that I do not have the real wealth that I need, and the real wealth that I need is God. So when you get to the place where you acknowledge your need for God, the kingdom of God is yours. The third requirement for repentance is that one understands that all that matters is what God says, not what people think. 
Some of us want to repent based on what people think. I see people who want to get married to somebody and they say, well, I would like to get married to this person. And because the person says, well, if you don't give your life to Christ, we can't be married. And they want to get married. They go ahead and do that. Let me tell you a little bit of a story of Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee got born again at the age of 19. At the time, he had a girlfriend. After he got born again, he went to the Lord and asked the Lord. And the Lord told him, if you are going to follow me, you, have, you are going to have to leave this girl. He told the girl, sorry, we have to separate. And so he separated himself from the girl and went all out for God. Six years after when he was 25 years old, he again met this girl. This time around, the girl had become born again. And at that point in time, God said, now you can marry her. Watchman Nee didn't have to prod her to be born again. She went on her own way and got born again on her own. And they still got married. And that's why I tell people, if this brother or this sister is meant to be your husband or your wife or spouse, leave it in the hands of God. You are born again, go ahead and serve the Lord. Leave the rest in the hands of Almighty God. He knows what to do. He knows how he's going to deal with the matter and he will deal with it. Let us stop trying to instigate people into repenting because we want to have something from them. I heard the case of a man who started attending the church, got born again, only because his boss was a member of that church. And all that he was doing was eye service. One time when the boss got angry with the pastor and left the church, he followed the boss and the boss went to live a completely opposite lifestyle from Christ. He followed the boss. He did not understand that the issue is with God. He thought it's about men. If you are going to repent truly, you must recognize that sin is something we act against God, not against a man. So we seek forgiveness from God. A fourth ingredient for true repentance is the matter of heart conviction. The conviction in your heart that the actions you are taking, they are wrong. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, the Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In John chapter 16, when the Lord was speaking about the Holy Spirit, he made a comment about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In verse 8, he says, And when he has come, as the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The point here is that the conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts and convinces. I think I've mentioned this before. For example, if you are guilty of a crime, you are convicted of that crime. However, when sentence is about to be pronounced, you might say to the judge, Judge, you have convicted me wrongly. What have I, I didn't do anything wrong. Now the judge in reading the sentence can now tell you what you did wrong to convince you that you are wrong. If you are convinced of your conviction that you are really convicted of what you have done wrong, then we will see godly sorrow in you. When you are pleading, even the judge will know that you are pleading. And so the Holy Spirit convinces you that you are living a life of sin. If you don't have the conviction by the Spirit of God that what you are doing is wrong, that the life you are living is a life of sin, you cannot repent. It is this conviction by the Spirit of God that causes men to repent. So where that conviction is absent, you will not repent. The repentance or the confession, which is what follows that conviction, will be false and fake. Because it says, with the heart man believes, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It is what I believe that I speak. So if what I am saying is not based on a heart conviction, then what I am saying is false, is feigned, is not the truth. It's not true repentance. What we are saying here is that there must be hard conviction for you to actually say that you are repenting. That leads us to the issue of confession. There must be admittance of guilt or wrong before God more than before men. We must always remember that it is not going to stand in front of an altar, in front of a pastor, 
Some people do it because they want to receive the benefits that maybe the church is giving. They go and kneel down. And after the service, they go and say to the pastor, hey, I just came today. You know, I was one of those who gave my life to Christ. But you know, I've had this problem. They've been going around doing that. And they want to put guilt in the hearts of pastors that you're not even caring for us. But what they are doing is wrong. This admittance must come from a deep conviction in your heart that you're a sinner. And I've discovered one thing, that when this admittance is there, the fellow remains under conviction. You begin to ask yourself, you mean I did these things? You will go over your life and it will be as though you should rip your skin off your body. When you imagine the wrong things that you did, that's when you yourself know that you have truly repented. Those are some of the things that made John the Baptist to say, bring forth things, meet for repentance. Let us see it in your life. It's not just to confess, but you must know that indeed I'm a sinner. And that action causes you to hate sin. When you see sin, you run away from it. It makes you to forsake sin. These are the actions that result from a conviction and a confession. True conviction, true confession, which is the next part of it. There must be hatred for sin. There must be forsaking of sin. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You receive the mercy of God. In Psalm 32, we read about David when he had an issue with God. He writes from verse 1, he says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, that is covered by God. That is, God is no longer seeing him as a sinner. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, when I didn't repent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For as long as he kept his mouth shut, for as long as he did not see sin as something he should repudiate and forsake and abandon, he kept having pains in his body. Sin, my brother and my sister, causes pain in the body. Afterwards, when he repented, truly repented, all that was gone. He was a free man. And then there must be a willingness to change, not to go back to the old way. You must be willing to say, I don't want to go back to the old. You see, one of the things that people don't understand is that if you sit down and think about the old way and how am, I, how am I going to stop doing this? How am I going to stop doing that? You will never repent. What you need to do is trust God. When God sees the willingness in your heart, the power not to sin, he gives it to you. You don't have the power not to sin. It is given to you by God. Once there's first a willingness, then God gives you the power not to sin. This is the error that we find in many people's lives. They do not repent because they feel that if they were to repent, they would still go back and do the things they were doing before. But you repent and know that this thing, I don't want to do it again. God will give you the power to resist sin. He will give you the power not to sin again. But when you sit back and say, well, I can't stop this thing. So let's forget about repentance. Then you're just going to remain that way. You're not going to repent. Some people keep going to church, even though they are still drinking, even though they are still womanizing, even though they are into drugs, into homosexual conduct, and many other despicable things that people do. But they feel that, well, you know, if I'm truly to repent, I can't stop doing this thing. I know myself. I'll be able to stop doing it. I have a word for you today. Are you willing to stop sinning? If there first is a willingness, then God will supply the ability. It is not about you having the ability of initial. Nobody can stop sinning on his own, in his own power. The Bible says, by strength shall no man prevail. You can't prevail in your power. What power do you have? You've had this power for long. Many of us have exercised this power many years over and over again, having New Year's resolutions. But the resolutions failed within days. 
at best a week or two, it faltered. Why? We don't have the power. But when you hand over your life to God, God gives you the power to live as you ought to live. I remember a friend of mine who got born again many years ago and his problem was drinking and smoking, smoking particularly. Then at the time he got born again, there was this lengthy fast. He made up his mind that he would go through that fast. And he said he was shocked that throughout the fast, the desire for cigarette was gone. Till this date, no more. So these are the issues that we are discussing here. The Bible says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. The good of the land is the salvation of God. If only you are willing, God will give you the power to change. Finally, there must be restitution. You must restitute your ways. In Luke chapter 19, verse 8 and 9, after the Lord Jesus had met with Zacchaeus, and I told him that this day I'm going to eat in your house, and Zacchaeus took him to the house, in verse 8, the Bible says, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. A lot of times, salvation is not just something that you do in church and then you leave it. No, the real salvation takes place when you get back home and you start taking the right actions, the necessary things that you ought to do. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30 and 31, speaking of restitution, the Bible says, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. That's what restitution is. You are going to lose everything. By the time you look at what Zacchaeus was saying, it will be in penury. But that's what restitution is about. If you have stolen something, you must return what you stole. As long as it's with you, you must return it. And even if it's not with you, and your heart is burning you, pinching you to restitute your ways, you go and buy a replacement. Go and tell them, I stole this thing when I was working here. I'm sorry. Please, I'm now a changed man. This is it. You give it back. I heard of a man in the United States of America. He got born again, but he had been a pedophile for many years. After he got born again, he went to the police and he said to them, I'm now born again, but many years ago, I committed this act, this act, this act, this act. M mentioned all the numbers. I said, now I am turning myself in. The police people were stumped. They couldn't believe that somebody would report himself. It was a crime they were finding difficult to solve. And this man gave himself up to go to prison. Why? He had become born again. And now said, what I did then, was wrong. That is restitution. You cannot, for example, get a job by false pretenses through a forged certificate. Now you are born again. You must let them know that the certificate you used in getting the job was false and that you do not deserve to continue to do that job. Let them be the ones to say, continue or say, ah, thank you for even letting us know. You cannot have forged certificates and after you are born again, you are still using them. What is that all about? You cannot do that. Let him that stole steal no more. If you had lied before, go and start telling people the truth. That is restitution. We saw Manasseh. All the things that he had done wrong, he began to restore. He removed the things he needed to remove and restore the things of God back to where it was. Restitution is a very, very critical part of true repentance. But I must warn that it is also important sometimes to discuss with a pastor for counseling. And I'm going to tell you why. I heard the story of a young man. I don't know how true it was. I want to believe that it was a truthful thing. I don't think anybody would joke with that. This was a young man who was single, but he was in a relationship with another man's wife. Then he heard about restitution. Unfortunately, he did not take counsel. So he went to the man and said he had something to say to him. And the man said, what is it? And he told the man that actually I've been sleeping with your wife for so long. The man brought out the machete and killed the boy. 
The boy did not have wisdom. That's not the kind of thing we are saying you should go and do. Where the issue has a third party involved, you must seek counsel. Don't jeopardize the life of somebody else because you are now born again. That would be selfish. The fellow may not be born again, may not want it revealed. So seek counsel. There are some acts that you cannot restitute. God will take care of that through the blood of Jesus. However, the ones that you can do, the ones that you are the sole architect of it, no other person combined with you, report yourself. For example, you committed a robbery with six other people. You can go and report yourself and say, I'm one of those who committed the robbery. But I'm sorry, I cannot tell you the other people. But I am guilty. Arrest me. That is fair enough. Don't involve somebody else. Just put yourself. Let those other people, if they are saved, restore their own ways. So, number one, when we want to repent, we repent truthfully. Have the heart that yields to repentance. A good and honest heart. A heart that has been touched by the Spirit of God. A broken and contrite heart. One that has been subdued. The ego has been crushed and bruised and totally thrown aside. Is broken, is contrite, is willing to submit to God wholeheartedly. Understand that it is God that you are dealing with, not a human being. And God knows all things. There's nothing you are going to say to God that is news, that is information to him. So repent. Tell him all the sordid details. He knows. You don't have to do it in public. You can do it in your bedroom. And God will heal your heart. Let there be hard conviction in you. Let the Spirit of God bring that conviction in you. As you are hearing the message of God, the Spirit of God will be speaking to you that what you are hearing is about you. Repent. Change your ways. Then confess. Your confession is what you do with your lips. Haven't believed in your heart. If your confession does not agree with what is happening in your heart, you are a hypocrite. You are saying something that is contrary to what is deep in your heart. You must be convinced in your heart that indeed I am a sinner. And then you confess with your mouth. The word con has to do with a total or a complete or a thorough thing. So when we talk of conviction, we are saying you are thoroughly convinced. That is, you are thoroughly conquered. The word vince is in Latin for to conquer. You have been conquered. In other words, you do not have any more argument to place on the argument that the Spirit of God has brought to you. You agree that indeed you have conquered me. I am truly a sinner. And now you confess. You thoroughly admit. Con, thoroughly, fess to admit. You thoroughly admit that indeed what the Spirit of God said is true. I agree with the Spirit of God. I am a sinner. So there must be conviction. There must be confession. These two combined will bring about conversion. Conversion means that you hate sin. You forsaken sin. You are a new man. You are a new man. Remember that there must be a willingness in you to change. That is all God is looking for. The power for change is in God. He is the one who will bring about the power that will change your life. He is the one who will give you the power to make you to live that changed life. And finally, you must restitute your ways. If you have stolen, return what you have stolen. You have stolen somebody's goods. The goods are still in your house. Now you are born again. Take these goods and go and return to the man. Say, sorry, I'm the one that stole this thing. Return it. What are you doing with it still? Return it. You had a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You are born again now. Break up that relationship. These are the actions that show that you are truly repentant. And never forget that false repentance is not acceptable before God. You cannot be faking that you are repentant because you want something. You cannot be faking that you are repentant because you were caught and then say that that is repentance. That's not repentance. You cannot be faking that you are repentant because you want respite from the from the pain that you are going through. You cannot be faking that you are repentant because you want people to see you as 
a Christian or to see you as somebody who is repentant, you must truly be repentant. You cannot be repentant after an emotional thought. It will lead you to hell eventually because your life has not changed. Nothing has changed in your life. You just cried. You wept when you considered certain things, but there was really no depth of sorrow after a godly thought in you. You cannot be claiming to be repentant when all you want is something from God. Finally, you cannot be faking repentance just so that you can avoid the consequence of judgment upon your life. That's fake repentance. You must have true repentance. You must be restituted before the Lord. And by the grace of God, when these things are in place, you are ready to move forward with God. We are ready to move forward with the Lord concerning the issue of repentance from dead works. So next week, by the grace of God, we will be discussing dead works. And much later, after we're through with dead works, we'll now bring the two together, repentance from dead works, and look at what it really is and how the Christian is supposed to live his life laying that as a first level of the foundation of the Christian foundational doctrine. God bless you.